First Class Fatherhood. That is where Alec Lace comes in with his popular podcast. And one of the most interesting was on a podcast. Alec Lace interviews high-profile fathers from actors to NFL players with a vision to change the narrative of fatherhood and family life. Welcome, everybody, to episode 675 of First Class Fatherhood. I have got a tremendous guest to bring you guys today. Actor Michael Fishman joins me on the podcast. Michael Fishman has been acting since the age of six when he began playing DJ Connor on the iconic sitcom Roseanne. His performance earned him numerous award nominations and wins throughout the show's nine-season run. It's a role that he would go on to reprise during the show Connor's. Aside from being an actor, Michael Fishman is also a director, a writer, producer, tech advisor, and first-class father all the way. He is a lifetime humanitarian. He co-founded We Commend. And as a father, he has also opened up his heart by adopting children, one of which sadly passed away. It's a tremendous honor to have him on the podcast today. Michael Fishman will be here with me in just a few minutes, so please stick around for the interview. And today's interview with Michael Fishman was recorded on video and is available on my YouTube channel. So if you'd like to watch today's conversation between DJ Connor and myself, please subscribe to First Class Fatherhood on YouTube. Link is in the description of today's podcast episode. All right. And if you guys happen to catch the Speaker of the House nominations that went on for days and days just a couple of weeks ago, uh, you may have noticed that one of the biggest moments of that entire time was Congressman Jimmy Gomez going viral for bringing his four month old baby to the floor of the House of Representatives. He was tweeting out his experience as a first time dad, but being on the floor of the House uh, while changing his son's diapers and giving him feedings. And it really brought dads to the forefront. I love the image that I saw. I reached out to Congressman Jimmy Gomez, and he will be joining me right here on the podcast on Friday. So do not miss out on that one. Make sure you guys follow me on Instagram at Alec underscore Lace to find out all the other upcoming guest announcements. And please take advantage of that My Pillow deal we got going on right now. You're never going to get a better deal than this. Promo code FATHERHOOD at MyPillow.com is going to save you up to 80% off. They're getting rid of everything they got in stock. Take advantage of it right now. It's not going to last long. Whatever items are gone, they're already gone. But use the promo code FATHERHOOD at MyPillow.com and save up to 80% on your order. Do it now while supplies last. Don't forget about the book, First Class Fatherhood Advice and Wisdom from High Profile Dads, available at Amazon.com. If you guys have the opportunity, please let me spread the word about this podcast. Every father in your neighborhood or in your contact list, let them know about the show to see us celebrating fatherhood and family life. You guys know it. Father's Day is every day right here on the podcast. And here comes my interview right now, straight up with Michael Fishman on First Class Fatherhood. Joining me now, First Class Father, Michael Fishman. Welcome to First Class Fatherhood. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Alec. All right, let's start like this. How many kids do you have? How old are they? So I have uh, four kids and then one that I kind of care for part of the time. Uh, a friend of mine who is in the process of a divorce, I kind of help with her little one. But my, my four, I have two biological. Uh, one is 23, one is 20, and then I have two that I adopted after my marriage. Uh, one is 25 and the other one would have been 21. Yeah. And, and sorry for your loss, Michael. We'll get, I'll jump into that in just a second there. It's just for the listeners that don't know if you could just take a second to hit them with a little bit about your background and what you do. 
Well, most people kind of watched me grow up on Roseanne and kind of know me from that world. Uh, but uh, my life's kind of been a lot more diverse than that. You know, I've had a lot of different jobs over the years, but the most important role I've ever had is being a dad. And I started early because I was raising my little brother. Uh, I started kind of taking care of him when he was nine. Uh, right before I turned 18, I met what would become my wife. And we started talking about should we wait to have kids? And we, you know, we're being real responsible about it, but we were already taking care of a nine-year-old and doing, you know, parent-teacher conference and all that stuff. So we were like, if it happens, it happens. And then my life went on to kind of the fast track, and I got blessed with the most beautiful gifts anyone ever could. Uh, I had my son at 18. I had my daughter at 21, and it's been the most beautiful gift anyone could have ever imagined, and an amazing adventure. Yeah, and how did that? I mean, being eighteen, you, you know, obviously you had the the TV career that was that was uh, very big, very successful for you. How did becoming a father at such a young age? How did that kind of change your perspective on life? Well, I, <laughs> being a dad changes everything, as you know, and I think anybody who who ever has kids knows you. You're not. There's no ready, right? We can talk about being ready. You think you may be ready. I I was ready for the commitment. I was ready for the dedication. I was lucky because I had worked my whole life and had watched adults and kind of knew the things I didn't want to do as much as I knew the things I did. And I don't recommend having kids that young to anyone, but in my case, it really worked. And I feel like I did a really good job. You know, I always tell people when my kids were little and I, I kind of maintain this is I really know how I did when they're older and they leave the house. If they choose to come back and spend time with me, then I know I did something right. Yeah, very well said. And I obviously I, on my show, Michael, one of the things I talk about a lot is the fatherless crisis that we have going on with so many kids growing up without a father or a father figure. And I know you said you have, uh, you know, you've adopted a couple of kids. You you have one now that you're looking after. What what has that kind of been? What, what was that process like for you? I mean, I've had other dads on here that have adopted. I mean, I don't know if there's any greater form of love than that to be able to uh, take another child in that doesn't have a father father figure and make them your own. What was that process like for you? And what was the relationship like uh, with your biological kids and the ones you adopted? Yeah, it's a beautiful thing, but we have a crisis. It is a crisis. Um, it's worldwide, but particularly in this country, I think they estimate somewhere around 40 percent of kids grow up without a father or a male role model in their life. And it's hard to state this to the world because people don't always want to hear it, but the role of a dad is so unique and all of the psychological studies demonstrate it. For me, <clears throat> from the very beginning, <clears throat> I wanted to be a really active dad. Uh, it's one of the reasons I stepped away from the entertainment business for a while. I reshaped my whole life when I became a dad to really make sure that was my priority. My dad's a, a, a really great guy. He's an immigrant. He came here and kind of built himself up, but he wasn't always involved and wasn't emotionally connected in the ways I wanted to be. And we didn't do a lot of stuff together. He was a provider and he, he provided structure, but I wanted to be more hands-on. And so with my kids, that's really the, the path I took. I was, you know, involved in school and volunteered and, and coached sports and, you know, I, it, everything I could be involved. But in the meantime, I, I did what most dads do, which is work, which is dedicate yourself to providing and protecting and filling those roles. So, you know, I, I had gone through this process. I planned to get married once and never get divorced, but I found myself, you know, almost 20 years in, um, we had grown in different directions and she wanted to go a different direction. And she uh, ended up, we kind of 
amicably just kind of agreed. She she left. She went and started a new family and changed her life. And I, I kept all the responsibility and kept the kids. And one of the beautiful parts of that is in that process, I started mentoring a young woman who you can see behind me. Her name's Camille. And Camille was an adult already, but she's an example. She's never had a father figure in her entire life. And we started spending time together and I treat people like family anyway. And she and my daughter got along so well and it was so beautiful in this really tough, pivotal time during a divorce because divorce is one of the most awful things anyone can experience. Uh, I would advise people learn other communication skills, try everything else first. But in my process, Camille came in. And one day Camille turned to me and said, um, hey, I, I've never had a dad. Would you be my dad? Wow. And, and I was, you know, I, I almost get emotional now just talking about it. But I said to her, whoa, time out. I think you need to go sit down and think about what you're asking me because I only know one way. And I've said this, you know, I said this when I was 17 years old before I had kids was I'm never going to have any kids that I don't want. And I'm never going to have any kids I don't raise. And to this day, I have maintained that all the way through. Uh, I've never really missed a day. I, you know, this is the first year my daughter and I didn't spend her birthday together because she's 20 years old and in college on the East Coast. But I, I think there's a level of commitment you have to have as a dad, which I know you share. For Camille, she asked that question. I said, you need to think about it. And I needed to talk to Isabel and Aaron, my, my biological children, and make sure how they felt, especially because they were in a transition period. So we all kind of sat down and we kind of talked about it. And she asked again, and I said, yes. And, uh, you know, Alec, anybody who has kids like you do knows that it's the greatest gift. Um, but there's something really amazing about taking on a, a child that, you know, you know, it's hard because you don't know all of the background. And I, I, I didn't get to help raise every frame thoughts or mindsets or belief systems or family structures, right? So she comes in with her own set, which is good because it challenged ours. And my kids were all about inviting them in. And then her little brother was in the foster care system, uh, Larry. And Camille and I started fighting for his rights and fighting for his education, fighting for all these things. And I, I start going to these meetings to support her. And then I met him. And again, he'd never really had any kind of structure in his life. He had gone in and out of the foster care system. He was in a group home at the time. So I started pulling him out of the group home and spending as much time as I could within the framework of the social work system, which is its its own nightmare and mess. But then I got ready to adopt him too. And uh, he was going to age out of uh, foster care. So uh, Camille and his social worker both told me it's better for him if he stays till he ages out because then he gets more aid going forward. And it's one of my big regrets in life, Alec, is that I didn't finish that paperwork because um, when he passed away, I didn't have the rights that I needed to protect him or honor him properly. And what I would tell you is it doesn't matter what a piece of paper says, though. I, I think anybody who's ever stepped into a kid's life, I mean, that this is true of the young one that I stepped in to help care for. I tell people all the time, don't bring me into your kid's life because I only know one way. Because once I'm in a kid's life, I'm never going to abandon that kid. If they call me out of the blue, if they need something, I'm the person they should call at 2 o'clock in the morning to get home or because they need someone that they can count on. And I, I just think that's the role of a father. 
Yeah, that's amazing stuff, Fish, and it is a part of the solution set here to this fatherless crisis is because maybe not even if you're, uh, maybe not so far as adoption, but even just being that father figure, a lot of kids find it through a coach, through a teacher, uh, you, some find it in the military. It's just finding that father figure that's present in your life that shows that they care, uh, that, that that can help you teach some of these things. And I know I get I get attacked a lot. Uh, as if it's an attack on single moms whenever I talk about the fatherless crisis, and it's not that whatsoever. Uh, so it's just trying to address this one. And one thing I wanted to ask you too, Fish, <clears throat> excuse me, I do bring a lot of dads that have adopted, and it seems like a lot of the times uh, they'll adopt from China, they adopt from uh, Haiti, they adopt from uh, from Africa. Uh, so I, I was, and a lot of times they say it's because the process of adopting from inside the United States is a lot more involved. What was that process like for you? Uh, what was it a difficult process to go through to de- to, to adopt the, your, both of them? Well, uh, adoption here in the United States is so complex because there's all these extra pieces. Uh, I do want to say this as as a dad. Listen, single moms do an amazing job. I think, you know, you and I both agree. We've, we've talked about this off the air. Single moms are amazing and, and bless them because the, the role that they step into and take on is ridiculously hard. No one is under undermining that or, or limiting or, or underappreciating what they do. What I would say is we have to start expecting more of, of men and fathers. And I say that as one. And what I would say for both of mine is, you know, a lot of people adopt from outside the country because it's an easier process. Here, we have so many kids who need it, but the system is flawed. I mean, going through the family court system, dealing with, um, you know, DCFS and and dealing with social workers and, and going through the process of education rights and all of these things, our system is broken. And the good kids are getting lost in it and, and they get labeled and and stratified and not to you know get political too but also you know i adopted young people of color who the system doesn't always care for in the same way and that's that's a flaw too because it's an economic flaw it's a background flaw it's an assumption flaw and and we end up with these little prejudices that get in the way for me look it doesn't matter where the kid came from any honorable man will tell you I've been a coach for almost 30 years. Uh, I started coaching when I was 16 years old with my little brother. I was a high school coach, so I I came in and filled a role in a lot of people's lives. I've seen a lot of kids who came from single parent backgrounds, kids raised by their grandparents, people who had full, you know, family structures with extra family members. Love is love and kids need love and support. And the truth is not one of us can provide everything a kid needs all by ourselves. But the more positive people, particularly the more strong male role models, especially for young boys and men, the better they turn out. Yeah, and those statistics are overwhelming, Fish. I mean, it's it's not like not even close. And that's why I always try to make it clear that it's it's you know I think that single moms do an amazing job and they work miracles out there all the time. But uh, and I always reference it in this way: not all kids that grow up without a father are going to end up in prison. But eighty-five percent of the youths that are in prison. I grew up with no father in the home. And it's just those stats, they follow everything. Homelessness, high school dropout, teenage suicide, teenage pregnancy uh, is so much higher when there's no father present. So it's so important. And we, and, and we do, we, we have, you know, not only just foster kids, uh, but but sometimes, you know, a lot of these kids that, that, you know, get into the prison system, it becomes a recurring cycle for their entire life. And then they have kids and then those kids grow up with no father. And it's like I've had so many dads, too, that have broken that cycle where they grew up with no father, but made it make it an important thing in their life that they're never going to abandon their kids and that they're going to do the right thing to stay on track. And I think that's what helps too, breaking the cycle and also having guys like yourself that bring kids in 
uh, through the foster care system that don't have any parent whatsoever in their life. And then what, what a difference that makes, not just to that kid, but to our community, to our society and to our country. Uh, just the ripple effect of what that does is really off the charts and immeasurable. I agree. And I think it's really important that we we realize this is not a blame thing. What we have, though, is a crisis where children are growing up without guidance. And I think if we look at ourselves, how many times in your life did you need somebody to guide you, somebody who had a frame of reference bigger than yours? How many times did you need a male figure, a coach, a dad, an uncle, a grandfather? There's lots of places that you can get support and no one person can do it alone. But your father's supposed to be there. Inherently, it took two people to make a child. Two people should be invested in raising that child, and a child should know that they're loved and valued by both parties all the way through. Yeah, right on with that. And you mentioned there that I think you said your daughter turned 20 now. Uh, you've gone through a lot of these things that I haven't gotten to. I'm there right now with um, my oldest is 16, a junior in high school, so we're just really in the thick of this stuff. But they haven't even started driving yet, or on their own, I should say. Uh, so what, how did you kind of make it through here, these teenage years? What kind of advice do you have or how did you kind of handle it when your kids became old enough to start dating, driving, peer pressure, drug scene, alcohol scene? How did you kind of handle all that with them? Well, the, the best gift was probably the 10 years I spent as a high school coach because it made me aware and I got to kind of I got to do some dry runs with other people's children, you know, and, and as funny as that sounds like. I got to learn from the backside, like what they weren't telling their parents or or when they came to me, I'm like, you need to have that conversation with your parents. I don't think we ever get it all right. Uh, I just had this conversation with, you know, my 20 year old as she gets ready to go back to college, you know, in this spring semester and, and now she's back at school. And, you know, I have to have conversations about birth control and contraception and uh, being responsible and, you know, going to, you know, your gynecologist and what are the questions you're supposed to ask? And, Look, those aren't easy conversations for anyone, but they certainly not as a dad. I've never been a young woman. So everything I'm doing is I'm learning from the outside. I'm trusting the women in my life to kind of give me some information and guidance. But I have to be that person when when you're kind of being a single dad. Like this is one of those things I said to her is I don't love these conversations. It's not like I get excited to have them. It would be easier in some ways not to have them, except you need the information and you need the support. And if I love you, it means I have to have these conversations because what I can't do is hide from the responsibility and wait for some outcome. And and it it comes down to what you want to be. I mean, look, when when you adopt a child who's an adult and they're talking about dating or certain things, (laughs) that's a tough conversation to have as well. And kind of setting expectations for what your partner should be like and, and what she should be looking for in a partner and kind of helping her see her value and raise her perspective or, you know, with my sons, you know, teaching them to drive, you know, uh, young boys are kind of impulsive and, and high energy, but also teaching them how to treat a partner, being someone who is mindful of protecting their partner and being caring and supporting, but yet strong and assertive in a world that wants to challenge them and test them. And then in my case, you know, having young kids of color adds extra elements that you, you don't always anticipate and the difference in sometimes the way they were treated or the experiences or, you know, I was always worried when my kids got pulled over. Um, but with my son, when I was teaching him how to drive, we had two bad experiences where we got pulled over and there's a lot of beautiful people in law enforcement and I have some really close friends, but there are, there are some moments that are really nerve wracking and scary. And it's a, it's a, 
it's a different feeling. You worry about different things with each of your children. And what I would tell you is in my case, man, I, I've been blessed to have such diverse and, and really different artsy kids and athletic kids and, and high math, high English, you know, like just all across the board. So they've given me a run for my money in every area, Alex. So I feel like I have enough background. I've made enough mistakes. I probably could give you some insights on what not to do, but you know, we all find it on our own and you have to find that path. And the key to me is talk to them, ask them. Uh, if you can keep the lines of communication open as they get older, my kids call me in the middle of the night and they know they can have that conversation. My daughter talked to me about her new boyfriend and all this stuff. And, you know, I get off the call and take a big, deep breath and think to myself, this is what you want. This is what you signed up for. So (laughs) good job, dad. You you stayed in. I'll tell you that the communication is almost like a superpower right now where I am with like my two teenage boys because it's like you try to figure out when is the best time that they're willing to talk and it's like you have to kind of cater to when they're ready to do it and they don't offer it up automatically when you're ready to hear it so uh, just trying to figure out how to do all that is uh, is quite a challenge an interesting one and and uh, certainly a learning process as I go through it. But I think uh, for a lot of us, what's crazy is that we kind of, when it comes to these conversations, whether it be sex, drugs, alcohol, driving, college, peer pressure, work, uh, we, we kind of, I, I know I do, like you kind of draw from how it was introduced to you when you were growing up. And it's like, you know, my father was born in, in 1930. He was 50 years old when he had me. So his his school of thought was a, a much different generation than, you know, when, when my, my friend's kids' dads were growing up. So uh, it was a little bit of a different school of thought. And, and for people that don't have that father figure growing up, they kind of pull where they got their information from, whether that was in the street or in the schoolyard or wherever it was. And that's what they're using to kind of base it off of. So it's always interesting to kind of get a chance to listen to uh, what other dads have to say and how they're doing it, the guys that have been there. And that's why this just doing this podcast has been beneficial for me because it's amazing to see, you know, we're all more alike than we are different. I mean, even though no matter where we come from, no matter what we've been through as dads, we're all trying to figure it out. We want our kids to feel loved, to do well, to be successful. And we don't want to see them sad, hurt and and get themselves in all kind of trouble. So I think, you know, it, it, there's no guideline for this thing, but I think it's awesome to get a chance to listen to so many men that are trying to be better than they were yesterday. And that's the really the biggest goal I have is to try to be a better dad today than I was yesterday. A hundred percent. And that's this, that's the secret. The secret is none of us got a perfect path. We didn't get all the best information, you know, and, and my dad is in a much different generation and he immigrated here, like his life experience. And then look, my life, I grew up on television and worked in the entertainment. I, I've been working since I was six years. Like my life is not a scale that people can compare to or that makes any logical sense. So I've had to really feel it out and listen. You know, the drugs thing is a big one. You know, I always told my kids, the first thing is you get one free, call me anytime, anywhere. I ask no questions and I just pick you up, um, which I think is a great policy. And I, I said, you get one of those. So you can call me anytime, anywhere and just say, pick me up here. And this is my one we don't talk about. And I'm like, okay. So that was one thing. The other thing I did with my kids, I, you know, both my, my biological kids are athletes. You know, my son was at a school where there was a really big drug problem and there were a lot of kids using. And my solution to that was I had to make it easy for him to be able to say no. And saying no is not as easy. We, we Yeah, just say no, because like there's no peer pressure or whatever. Like none of, nobody we ever know. Nobody tried anything. Right. So for him, though, I made it simple as I gave him I went to a pharmacy and I bought a drug test. 
and I gave it to him and said, put it in your bag. I said, and if anybody ever gives you a hard time and you want to say no, put it on me. Pull it out, say, my dad's crazy. My dad will drug test me. He keeps one on hand. And every like three, six months, I would buy a new one. And every time it started to look really beat up in the bag, like it had been there for a while, I'd replace it. And I do it on purpose so that every time if he ever pulled it out, it was like brand spanking new. And people were like, oh, man, you know, I had no problem with his teammates thinking I was the meanest, toughest dad in the world. I'll take that responsibility. You can call me whatever you want as long as you can maintain the values you choose and that it makes it easy. Listen, I'll be the bad guy all day long. Yeah, it's definitely a big fear of mine, Fish, because I'm a recovering alcoholic and addict as well. And, uh, you know, it, it just as much, I think the best thing that I can give them is the fact that they see me living clean and sober. They, they don't see me drinking or, or drugging or even gambling no more, nothing like that. So uh, hopefully that is the biggest influence that I can have on them. But still, when it's when it's there and they're in that moment, uh, it's going to be ultimately on them to make that decision. And there are so many, so many. I mean, we, I mean, it is so sad the way we're filling up penitentiaries and we're filling up cemeteries with kids that are having problems with drugs and alcohol in this country. It's a, that's another epidemic that we got going on at a massive proportion. But well, Alec, uh, I, I'm going to touch that one because that's how I lost. That's how I lost my young son. Um, he tried something. He wasn't an addict. He tried something and was gone. And it was just that quick. And the hardest part about that for a family, like I'll tell you, is it's the anger and the frustration with where did he get it from and, and why did he try this? And, and the truth is we have an epidemic uh, of chemical dependency. We have an epidemic of addiction in our country because we're not having conversations and because people are coming from split or empty homes where they go home after school and there's no support structure or even our economic system is causing us to work so many different hours. I know you work crazy hours, and I, I've worked as many as four jobs at a time to make everything work. They're not getting that coping mechanism, that healthy coping mechanism. They're not getting the communication. So conversations like this start to make that possible. Your kids seeing you clean, sober, being honest, being powerful, what you do is changing their lives already, whether, whether you get to really celebrate that yet or not. They'll have to make their own choices. Um, in my case, I came into my son's life so much later than I wish I had. And there was pre-existing stuff that, that started even before birth for him. So there was a, a, a kind of a, a precursor to it and, and a pull that was always going to be there. Yeah, I thought it, I had more time. Yeah, so, so sad, Fish. And, and like you said, I mean, this is a problem that we're having all over the country. But it, when it hits in the family and it hits you like this... Uh, boy, it has a different impact. And it's and, and like I said, it, it, it's sometimes you could think you're doing everything possible uh, and, and living the straight life and, and showing them the right path. But ultimately, you can't be there at every single decision that they make. And it, it, we, although we wish we could, um, you know, unfortunately, we can't. And I know you say you grew up, you were working since you're six. You've been in that Hollywood industry. I know that that's one where you don't hear many successful child actor stories. I know that we hear some some real horror ones. Uh, from kids like what what growing up in Hollywood, I would imagine it was a lot different uh, when you came through the system as it is today. I would think anyway. I mean, I would imagine there's a lot of differences. Uh, and I, I kind of wanted to ask you with this whole social media thing that's kind of exploded for a way kids are getting discovered now, and and the way you could just be a, a viral sensation overnight. Uh, what is the difference between uh, kids acting in Hollywood when you came through and kids acting today? And how would you kind of steer parents who have kids that do have a hunger to act? Well, what I tell you is, look, I saw 
everything. Um, if I'm being totally honest, you know, addiction and drugs and alcohol and, and sex and adult stuff, like it's an adult world and it's a world of when we do it right, it's the most beautiful world because you make some of the most beautiful creative stuff. But there are a lot of damaged narcissistic people with with messed up coping mechanisms who numb or to try to use chemicals to gain an advantage or hype themselves up, bring themselves down or get control of other people. I mean, let's be honest. I'm in a unique frame. I was always determined not to be a statistic as a as a child star. You know, I, I hate that term, but it, it is true. And what I would tell parents is, you know, the first thing is your kids should be the one pushing it, not you. Um, because when there's tough days, when you have to go to work, we all know when it comes to our jobs, if you know why you're doing it, then you'll be willing to stick it out when it gets tough. And then I tell people, I've raised my kids kind of on this adage and I've taught it to kids I coached. If you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. And I've watched people reach the top of our business and have everything in the world, fame, money, power, access to everything in the world and be miserable or destructive and watch them tear themselves apart. If you're not enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. And you get to decide what the it is in your life. So, so understand that. And I would say this also as a, as a coach and for parents who have athletes, train your athletes from the beginning to understand that they don't play forever. I was an athlete. You know, I have two kids who are athletes. My daughter's a college athlete, a division one college athlete. But that's a window in your life. It cannot define you because one of the problems that we get is people define themselves by fame or attention or all these things. And it's what social media is. It's everybody placing their highlight reel out into the world so people can kind of give them adoration and support. But that's a dangerous thing because if your value is based externally on everybody else's feedback, you have to keep feeding that. And at some point, you either feel like you're not enough or it starts to become destructive and it can turn on you in a hurry. And, and I think a lot of people kind of got shocked by that too, Fish, when we just seen uh, Twitch, uh, who uh, committed suicide, and where it seemed like everything that we ever saw from him was upbeat and happy. It seemed like he was uh, fulfilled in life and loved what he was doing and stuff. So sometimes what we're watching on TV is, you know, we're seeing on social media specifically uh, could just be this illusion. Uh, and then sometimes we buy into it and think like, oh, and then we start to envy those people and think like, man, my life ain't as good as this person. And it, and I'll tell you what, I know one of the things that's interesting is that, not interesting, it's that sad, is that youth suicide has gone up every single year since 2007, which is coincidentally the first year the smartphone came out. But I, and I don't remember growing up and hearing about kids uh, killing themselves. So like, it was like a thing I never heard about. And now just this year, uh, a child in my, in my son's uh, junior cl class uh, killed himself. Last year, there was another one uh, in high school that in my, my other son's class that killed himself. And it's like I'm thinking like this was something that, 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 that was never on the charts back when I was a kid. And now it just seems like it's it's another epidemic that we're having in this country. And I think so much of this uh, is tied into social media and the damage that it's doing. I agree with you. It, so suicide has been pervasive in my life. Um, friends, families, teammates. Uh, I, I've experienced it as a coach. I've experienced it as a teammate. And all of my kids have experienced it personally. Uh, my son, one of the things he was battling with bef before and, and probably was one of the things he was trying to cope from was his closest friend had just committed suicide a couple months before. We went to the very first funeral he had ever experienced. And um, I'm glad I got to take him. 
I'm glad, you know, there were some really beautiful moments that we got to share and talk about life. Uh, and I think we have to talk to kids about life, but we also have to explain to them. People feel like this moment is everything. And when you live a long time, the longer you live, the more you realize some of those moments that feel like they're going to break you, they aren't everything. They are a moment and they're there to teach you something. And I, as somebody who's experienced a lot of loss and a lot of grief, I tell people grief is it's the outcome of love that you didn't get to express. I have grief every day for my son. I mean, it's one of the reasons that when you look at my social media it's different because I, I started working with high school kids. And then when I came back into entertainment again, I wanted to make sure my message was clear. And I wanted people not just to see the highlight reel. And um, when I lost my son, I wasn't planning on sharing it with the world. I've been a pretty private person up until that point. And then the press got a hold of it. And I had to call my daughter and say, how do you want me to handle this? Because I won't say anything or do you want me to handle it head on? And she said, Dad, if you can help one other family not experience what we're feeling – then do it and share. And that opened me in a way I'd never been open before. And I would tell you, social media is, it's a beautiful tool to connect, you know, but it also is so destructive for young people because they don't understand the world. You know, Twitch is one of those examples. I grew up around comedians. They are some of the funniest, brightest, smartest, most well-read, diverse individuals in the world. But most humor comes from a place of pain. It's a coping mechanism, uh, my, even my own. And what I would tell you is, man, I find ways to share laughter and love, but I am kind because I know what cruel looks like. And I am loving because I didn't always get the love that I probably should have along the way. And my loyalty was built out of being betrayed. And I think this is the message I would tell young people, and I, it's the message I would hope parents would start passing to their kids is, you get a choice. It's the difference. You get a choice about who you choose to be. Pick the adjectives you want, write them down and start living them. But don't base it just on today because if we're being honest, if we live every one of our emotions, we would be monstrous people. If we act out every emotion we have, we would be monstrous. So have monstrous moments and then be strong enough to focus them and, and build your character and have integrity. Yeah, right on with that, Fish. And I, I, I definitely agree with your daughter there, too. I think just sharing this, you never know who's listening. You never know, and you'll never never have any idea of who you've impacted uh, by sharing the story. And I think uh, that's the main, most important thing about doing podcasts like this, talking about these issues, is that you never know who's listening, and you could catch them at the right time in their life, and it can make an impact. So that's why... You know, props to you for for being able to to share something so personal to you and so you know grief stricken in your family. So I, I I think it is important, as painful as it may be. And what I know that you said, getting back into the entertainment industry, what is next for you? What kind of goals? What kind of projects you're working on? What's coming up next for you here in the new year? Well, you know, I'm writing a bunch of stuff. It, it's the pro project for me is I started in this business so young. You know, I, I'm kind of the the youngest dinosaur. I remember all the old school stuff, and I've really grown with the technology. I've been directing the last couple of years, so I'm looking for the right projects to direct. I'm in the process of writing. I have some really important topics and, and some ideas for some new shows that are really exciting for me. Uh, I think there's a place, there's a message and a tone that I don't think we're tackling in entertainment right now. And fatherhood is one of them. And I think there's a special place for certain shows that tackle that, there's a special place for blue collar things because you said something really important out that I think 
pervades all of my writing and all of my work and what's coming forward for me in the future is we're more alike than we are different. And we're never really truly alone. And we will find those places we're together when we find the humor in real things and when we start to connect to the parts that we all can agree on and the parts that we all share. This adventure of life, no one gets out of it without some lessons, and those lessons teach you a lot, and they're very entertaining. So uh, I'm tapping into my knowledge and my experience and my life experience. There's a lot of stuff coming. It's the beauty of this business, though. You really have to will it into existence. Yeah, well, a lot of respect for the hustle. I love what you're doing. Can't wait to see what you got coming out. And the last thing I want to hit you with here, I love to ask all the dads that I get on the podcast, what type of advice do you have for that new dad or for that about-to-be father who's out there listening? If you're an about-to-be father, I'm going to start from the very beginning. Read, find every guy that you know who has kids and ask them the things that they wish they had known. Because I think knowledge comes from others and it really other people's experience is invaluable. If you're a dad and you're not quite sure if you're doing it right, you already took the best step. It's because the self-awareness to want to be good, to want to make this your mission – this is the most important role you'll ever have in your entire life. You will shape the rest of the world by the children you put out into it. So take that responsibility, love it and embrace it and learn not to be, some of us learn to be hard. Those old school, we had old school dads. I think you and I both had one of those. Mix in some love and some kind language, really work on communication because your communication skills will change everything. They need to know you're the safe place. You can be the warrior and the protector, but you also have to be the safe place for them to come home to. Yeah, I, I love the message. This has been an honor for me. I got to say, Michael Fishman, you're a first-class father all the way, and thank you so much for giving me a few minutes of your time here on First Class Fatherhood. Thanks, Alec. It's a pleasure. You have been listening to First Class Fatherhood. Please visit www.firstclassfatherhood.com to find out more details. You can order First Class Fatherhood advice and wisdom from high-profile dads on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Proverbs 22.6 tells us, Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will never depart from it. God bless, and I'll catch you next time.